0: Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist
1: Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello and thanks for listening. This is Daniel Strain. My co-host Jay Forrest and BT Newberg will not be joining me this time as we're doing a little something different today. First, I'd like to thank those who are giving us feedback on our webpage and our Facebook page. Aaron, Eric, Chris, Ryan, Amelia, Dave, and many others. Thanks for your kind words of support. We really appreciate that. Today, we are interviewing Rick Heller. Rick Heller facilitates the Humanist Mindfulness Group that is sponsored by the humanist community at Harvard University. His writing has appeared in Buddha Dharma, Free Inquiry, UU World in the Boston Globe, and many other places. You can read about him at his website, rickheller.com, R-I-C-K-H-E-L-L-E-R.com. Rick is also the author of a new book out by New World Library called Secular Meditation, 32 Practices for Cultivating Inner Peace, Compassion, and Joy. It is available in bookstores and major booksellers online, For those interested in part of their cost going to support spiritual naturalism, we will also provide links on how to get Rick's book through the Society on our page for this episode of the podcast in our website at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. So Rick, thank you for joining us. Hi there. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Rick and I have been friends for a a while after working together. Uh, I don't think we've ever met in person, but uh, we've communicated a lot.
0: No, we were at the um convention, at the humanist convention in Boston. Uh, oh, that's,
1: right. that's right, we sure have. Uh so yeah, um it's been a pleasure uh working with you uh and seeing your projects come along and I was really excited when I, I learned that your book was coming out and uh what a great thing for it to address. This Secular Meditation and 32 Practices. Why don't I just begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about the book, just in generally.
0: Well, the book is based on the um, weekly meditations that we've been doing at the Humanist Community at Harvard. So every Tuesday night at 7 p.m., we hold them. And uh, if you are actually in or passing through the Boston area, people are welcome to go to... Uh, we list our, our uh, meetings on meetup.com under the name Cambridge Secular Buddhists, and uh, So we've been uh, uh, meeting uh, for more than five years, and uh, the book is based on the meditations we've been doing there. Uh, Also, I have a a journalism degree, and I've written some articles, and so the book is both, uh, really has two roots. One root is in the practice of, of what we've been doing, and then there's a certain amount that is based on the journalism. I've interviewed Buddhist teachers, and I've interviewed psychologists and neuroscientists about uh, meditation. So it's all in there.
1: That's great. So the 32 practices, um, are they 32 different types of meditation then?
0: Well, uh, some of them are formal meditations like uh, mindfulness of breath meditation, mindfulness of ambient sound, uh, loving kindness meditation or metta. So some of those are the kind of things that you might uh, sit down on a cushion for 20 minutes, closing your eyes and, and do something like that. And some of the others are mindfulness practices. So for instance, one of them is uh, mindful viewing of museum exhibits. And you, so you, what you would do, as I describe it, is you would go to a museum, it, you might find a bench in the museum where you could sit down for 10 minutes or so, do, let's say, a breath meditation to settle your mind. And then you would uh, look at one of the exhibits. And in that particular case, one of the differences between mindful museum visit and a regular museum visit is, rather than trying to see everything, it actually just pick a few things and spend an inordinate amount of time on each individual thing. So we, you know, we, uh, one of the things we did with our group is we went to the uh, Natural History Museum at Harvard, and uh, we spent about 10 minutes looking at a geode, Uh, I think it was Amethyst Geode, and just like looking at it, looking at the reflections, looking at the color, looking at the space it occupied, uh, and
1: uh, so we were mindful. So in your group, the Humanist Mindfulness group, what kind of uh, feedback have you received from the people who have been doing these practices?
0: Um, well, uh, so in terms of, the book has just come out, so I, I, I can't say I've gotten feedback on the book itself, hmm. but the book does actually contain some interviews with some of the people in the group. Uh, and uh, I sat down with each of the individuals and, uh, you know, got their permission to, you know, sh- to have them share their thoughts and their experiences and how uh, coming to the group has uh, been to them and how they've been able to kind of develop their own mindfulness practices. Uh, so that's one thing for a few individuals. And then each chapter, or most of the chapters are structured with an introduction, then a meditation, and then a discussion afterwards, because that's how we do it in on our Tuesday night meetings. We have a little introduction, we have a meditation, and then we spend a lot of time talking afterwards. So I've incorporated some of what uh, has come up in those discussions uh, into the meditation, and uh, one aspect of it is that, you know, different people react differently to different meditations. And one of the advantages of having a lot of different choices is that some people who might um, not uh, do well with a breath meditation might do well with the ambient sound. That's that's actually our – I call that our bread and butter because every other week we do – I give instructions on ambient sound and uh, breath and people can choose. And then on the alternate week I do something – pick something else from the hat. So mantra meditation, body scan meditation, Uh, loving-kindness meditation, compassion meditation. So uh, there's all sorts of different meditations. And I do find out that, you know, different people have better experiences with certain types of meditation.
1: With this being a secular uh, form of meditation or secular forms of meditation, have you had to uh, modify them much from their traditional formats, or was it more a matter of which meditation forms you selected?
0: Well, I don't there's not a lot of modification. One in terms of the actual practices. So I do with the meta meditation or loving kindness meditation, I did modify it so instead of saying may May she be happy, may she be healthy, I, I changed that to I would like her to be healthy, I would like her to be happy because I kinda of felt that the Form of may some people which strikes sort of strikes me and strikes some people as kind of a petitionary prayer because it's like who are you at who are you when you say may so and so be happy who are you asking so anyway mm-hmm. um, just to make it clear I change it to uh, I would like so and so to be happy and that's just minor tweak uh, there's a couple other places uh, uh, where there are minor tweaks but it's really more it's really more it setting it in the context I think a lot of uh, Buddhist meditation practice, the practices themselves work. The practices themselves may be reasonably compatible with secularism. But often there's a sort of um, discussion around it that puts a, a context in it which uh, might... Uh, but actually, one thing with the loving-kindness meditation, though I do say that for us, um, uh, loving-kindness meditation works by If you you, if you if there's somebody who's not present but you have them in mind and you say those words, it's not going to work through psychic powers traveling through the ethers. You know, so we we our assumption is that when you say those words, it changes your own brain so that the next time you see that person, it may affect your interaction with that person. But there's nothing that happens magically through you know psychic powers. Um, Whereas I think in uh, some traditional uh, Buddhist views, it, it, there is a psychic event occurring.
1: Yeah, the, uh, uh, and most of these forms of uh, meditation come primarily from Buddhist traditions, uh, Zen and what have you? Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, okay. Most of them are, I would say, from Buddhist. The um, mantra I, I really credit as a Hindu meditation, it comes from, actually, we do it from the relaxation response by Herbert Benson. And he got that from transcendental meditation, which is essentially a, a, a type of Hindu meditation. So um, uh, in transcendental meditation, uh, people would have a mantra, or word or phrase, and they would use a word or phrase that was coming out of the, uh, I think, out of the Hindu tradition. Sometimes these words would have a religious meaning. Harvard Benson, who was a Harvard uh, Medical School cardiologist, he suggested using the word one, like uh, as opposed to om, one. Um, mm-hmm. I actually suggest just love as the the mantra, but you can use any sort of mantra. And, sure. but anyway, so that comes from Hinduism. I actually have one from um, Catholicism. The uh, spiritual exercise of Ignatius of Loyola contains uh, a way of inserting yourself imaginatively into a narrative. In in uh, Loyola's case, he suggests in the Bible, but I actually I actually have uh, uh, one of uh, Thoreau's book, his canoe trip up the Concord and Merrimack rivers, and I pick a selection where one reads it very slowly and imaginatively inserts oneself into the narrative as an observer. So it's essentially that same practice, but uh, secularized.
1: So there is a uh, a little more uh, modification that was needed, especially in a case like transcendental meditation, as I understand it. There's a lot of background to those mantras that that would not be something that naturalists would identify with. Um, so that's really great that you've brought it together, saved people a lot of uh, filtering or research. and, and I've done uh, the
0: filtering, so you don't have to.
1: Yeah. So as a person goes through these, these kinds of practices, uh, how do you envision this book being used, where people take the book and then they... Uh, like you said, they read through it and then they say, "Well, I think this is something I could try. This is something I try. They try different things and they see what effects. What kind of effects should they expect, or what kind of uh, effects have you experienced with these forms?
0: Well, I actually kick it off with loving kindness meditation or or, my, or meta meditation, which I, I've really come to um, enjoy a lot and it's been pretty fundamental and, in in what I do. Uh, you know, I would my breath meditation is probably the most common if you ask person who doesn't know what meditation is, they would say, oh, well, you just pay attention to your breath. Uh, And that's fine. But I I, I think that for a secular audience, the loving kindness meditation might have some advantages as a starting point. So um, for instance, when I was uh, getting my hair cut, I I talked, you know, i chat with my hairstylist and Yeah, I I think I probably mentioned mindfulness, whatever, and it's like, I have to, she does, it's hard to define, if you actually haven't done the practice, it's hard to exactly say what it is. It's something you have to sort of experience to say, ah, okay, I I see that. Whereas loving kindness is something that, uh, you know, uh, she she understands perfectly without me having to describe it because it's, you know, something that exists in our society. So I think it's a, it's sort of a nice entry point uh, for people. Also, a lot of people say that they have difficulty quieting their mind and the loving kindness of meditation doesn't require that it's a guided meditation that uh, you you leverage your warm feelings for loved ones into uh, widening the circle to including to include neutral people and even what they call difficult people or sometimes the enemy mm-hmm. in certain cases so that's that one. Uh, I, you know, that one also I think has potentially has a social impact. I don't really, have a, I don't really focus on social issues in the book. It's a meditation book, but I, the loving-kindness meditation is a little bit more social than a meditation where you are just focusing on the breath. And it actually has been shown, uh, there's actually been some scientific studies of loving-kindness meditation, and at least one shows that it does help people be more accepting of people to whom they might have had prejudices. So I, I think it's uh, there's actually some things to that that actually potentially could have a social impact.
1: Well, I know that uh, in my own practice, I've experienced over time a moving of the gauge, uh, if you will, like a, of empathy, and it is uh, it, I've actually moved it both ways <laughs> through conscious choice of what kinds of practices I wanted to do, dial it back, bring it up. Hmm. And there was a time where I went so far with the empathy thing that it was actually causing me more suffering because I was so affected by ah. other people's, you know. And so I, I was talking with one of the monks at a local Buddhist temple here, and uh, he said, well, that's because we balance the compassion with wisdom. And by that he meant Dharma wisdom, and by that he meant uh, non-attachment, Huh. Mm-hmm. which is a big topic. It's you know of course, but um, when well, you I'm talk- with that. You know, humanists are
0: very good with reason. Um, empathy is something that I think um, is not emphasized, although I mean I think basically humanism does, at least in theory, uh, is concerned by there's concern for one's fellow human being, but it's, um, it tries to be a sort of um, unemotional concern for other other people, shall we say. It tries to be a reasonable concern. And I think the loving-kindness practice can actually add an emotional component, which to a certain point I think would be helpful, although you don't want to take it so far that you lose sight of reason.
1: Yes, and I think that uh, the reason and compassion, you know, as you know that's part of our motto at the Spiritual Naturalist Society, is uh the the secular humanist and uh, naturalist movements have all um, been so focused on the intellectual that there's this whole other parts of the brain that need to be engaged and involved in something um, that's what I like about these kinds of practices and these kind of efforts and, and I'll, I'll add that um, so
0: in, in terms of the humanist, community at Harvard, uh, we uh, have um, every Sunday there's a talk, uh, uh, and uh, it's usually kind of in a more of a lecture format, although they've actually added a, a moment of connection, so they're starting to put in a little bit of that uh, community aspect, but it, I would say most of it is is in a lecture format. So with the meditations, we've actually tried to be more on the uh, emotional side, uh, and mm-hmm. we, uh, the, uh, we do include... Um, what we call joys and concerns where people can share uh, things that are going on in their personal life as well to make sure that you're not just it's not just this sort of intellectual thing
1: yeah that's great um, you know when you were talking about the uh, the elements that you changed in the one meditation to sound less like a prayer it reminded me of something that actually uh, was one of the early things that alerted me to the potential of something like these kinds of meditations and it uh, came from an unlikely source. I happened to be listening to Catholic radio, mm-hmm. and um, the callers would—it was like a show, you know, where they had a priest, and callers would call in, and then he'd give the Catholic answer to things. And uh, it wasn't anything the host said; it was one of the callers. It was uh, sounded like it might have been an elderly lady, and she was sounded very. Uh, genuine and sincere and very caring other people. And she described how every night she would kneel at her bedside and she would pray for all the people in her life and then people that weren't in her life that she knew about and wish them happiness and everything. And, and the way that she described it was exactly like how those meditations work. She started with the people next to her and she moved outward. Really? and. Wow. Uh, Yeah, and I was thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, she obviously has a belief about something else that's going on there, a communion with another being and those sorts of things. But, And I thought, what effect that must be having on her attention, on her empathy, on her compassion to focus on the well-being of others each night. And, of course, you know, The humanist standard response is, well, you know, it's better to lift a hand and to do something. But that lifting of the hand begins within. Mm -hmm. You're not going to lift your hand unless you have the disposition. So I was thinking about how that must affect her internally. And then I thought there's nothing really, aside from some of our, you know, newer efforts and everything in the in the humanist and in the secular uh movements there's nothing that compares to that mm-hmm. there's nothing that would have that kind of transformative cultivating effect over time unless it's this kind of thing that we're talking
0: about. Yeah and and the way it in theory it works is um uh, with, with the uh, with any of the meditations, there would uh, be neuroplastic changes. The brain changes over time, and the more you do, and it's not just with meditation, with anything. Learning this to, to play baseball the same way, any kind of skill, the more you practice it, uh, the better you get at it, and the more automatic it becomes. Uh, although it's a little bit funny with mindfulness, because mindfulness is actually is a way of paying attention and transcending automaticity. Yet I believe, and I discuss in the book that you can still make mindfulness a habit that certain uh, if at uh, the more you practice it it will you will remember more often oh let me be mindful now so for instance i i try to if i wash dishes i try to do that mindfully and then as i actually go to the sink often that actually triggers oh oh let me mind, let me mindfully wash the dishes because i've done it often enough uh so the uh the if it's it, it, it the, the med the loving kindness meditation in theory uh does not just affect you the moment you're doing it, but probably will lead to memories that will kick in later on.
1: Mm. You know, I do uh I started off with the breathing meditation and I still do it primarily, and now I kind of bookend it with some loving compassion meditation. But I've found that the breathing meditation gives you the, uh, over time, improves your focus and your ability to quiet your mind. And then with that ability, I can then apply it to things like loving meditation. Mm-hmm. I feel like it provides kind of an underlying background uh, skill. You know,
0: I, I I meditate every day, but my reg- I would say my regular meditation is pretty much a breathing meditation. I don't do the loving kindness meditation as a formal practice every day, but I I have it in mind. And actually, I don't just try to practice it with people. I try to practice it with what I say would say stimuli, anything that is occurring. So people, animals, computers <laughs> that are acting up. Uh, you know, just with sounds of, uh, leaf blowers that are louder than I might wish and just anything that might be going on. I try to say, oh, okay, I don't have to actually have this resentment against this thing that I don't like. I can try to bring some compassion to it. And also, if something's even if something's just neutral, I can, I can just sort of say, okay, it's neutral, but I can bring some kindness toward it. And it's a mood elevator. And I do try to keep that in mind. So the loving kindness is something I try, I'm doing it more kind of with my eyes open throughout the day, whereas the breath meditation is more sitting down and, and and doing that in a formal practice.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So uh when you talk about uh the uh the sounds and and whether they're annoying and, and whatnot, whether we're trying to meditate or other things like that, other annoying stimuli or things that we, we don't like. One of the most helpful things that that I came across uh, after a long time of doing meditation was the realization that the judgment we place on a stimuli has a huge bearing on how easily we are able to set it aside and return to the breath or maintain our equanimity anyway, in any case.
0: Right. And, and actually I do emphasize that with the ambient sound meditation the first time I ever did this, Jack Kornfield, uh, it was a, a workshop by Jack Cornfield, the uh, Buddhist teacher I attended, and I, that's where I first learned it. And I really had the insight there. It has to do with what um, the Buddhists refer to the, as the Four Noble Truths, and I don't really interpret the truths with a capital T. Uh, I don't spell with a capital T, but I do believe there is some val- psychological validity to it. And basically what it's one of the things it's saying is that no stimulus is inherently good or bad it's it's the reaction you bring to it so in the case of the ambient sound meditation i i say that you know uh if you we're doing the meditation in part of a group and if a bus goes or in harvard square if a bus goes by a lot most situations where a bus goes by you wouldn't want that if you're trying to study for the exam and there's all this noise the word noise is, a, is defined as a sound that is unpleasant, that is unwanted. Mm-hmm. And so if, there's a no, if you're in a noisy environment that interferes with your goal of studying, that's a problem. But if your intention or goal is to pay attention to sounds, people actually perceive the bus going by as, ooh, there's a good sound, I can listen to it, and at the, the volume rises, the volume goes down. And sirens, sirens actually become, fun. people like sirens with ambient sound meditation. So you learn that it's not the stimulus, but your reaction to the stimulus because of how it connects to your goal that makes the difference of whether it's good or bad.
1: And then what that allows you to do is you are studying and the bus goes by, you can say, well, I don't have to be upset about that. I can treat it the way I treated the birds singing outside if I want mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. It's my choice. Right. So uh, what, what first made you decide to write this book? Uh, when, did, when did the idea come up in comparison to the group and, and, and that sort of thing? The first idea
0: to write uh,
1: this,
0: this book, or not exactly this book, was in 1986. Mm. <laughs> so in 1986, as I, I, I include the story of uh, several people in our meditation group, including my own, I had, uh, this is quite some time ago, obviously, I had a very um, difficult experience with essentially what was eye strain, but I'd magnified it to the point where it was um, really interfering with my ability to work, and I went to doctors, I went and uh, I finally went to an ophthalmologist at the University of California, San Francisco Medical School, near where I lived, and he told me that my eyes were fine, he checked them out, but that I'd become hypersensitive to pain, and that... The process of uh, paying attention to the stimulus with a lot of aversion, he didn't use those exact words, but essentially that, actually has a way of magnifying the suffering. The way I just said it now sounds a little bit more Buddhist, but that's, because that's, I I didn't know anything about Buddhism at that point, and he didn't talk about Buddhism either, but basically that's where I got, I learned this, and and actually when he told me this, it actually clicked, and I believed it, and it, it just made a huge difference, and I. I recovered, I'd been having this pain for like eight years, and then within basically 48 hours, I had a just tremendous turnaround. So that was a very important thing to me, and then um, I think within the next year or so, I attended a lecture by M. Scott Peck, I don't know if you recall that name, he wrote the book The Road Less Traveled, which which was a huge Hmm. bestseller in the 80s, and I attended a lecture from him, and he he said, um, I want you to take some time, uh, obviously everyone in the audience." some quiet time and think of something you'd like to do, something that would be important. And that weekend I had the idea to write a book about my experience, which turned out to be vastly um, too ambitious. To say, I actually completed a book, but it really wasn't so good. Anyway, I'd say I've been trying to write for a long time, but it was really only until – I actually um, got a professional writing degree. I got a master's in journalism from Boston University. That I was able to actually get my writing published uh, first as articles, and then eventually it evolved, you know, into this book.
1: Wow, that's interesting. So, what about uh, future books? Are you are you interested in writing in the future? And if so, would it continue along these lines or be totally different topics?
0: Well, I, well I'm not going to say too much about it, but I'm I'm working on a um, a novel uh, because I, I don't have another I, I put the wisdom I've accumulated over many years <laughs> is in this book and it's going to take a few more years before I have some more things to say in terms of a non-fiction book but I'm working on a novel with, uh, which has some mindfulness themes which uh, might be another way of uh, um, having an audience that might not read a non-fiction meditation book uh, be exposed to mindfulness themes
1: oh that's interesting so uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. Is there anything else you want to tell the listeners? We're going to be, uh, by the way, I think I didn't mention this, but we're going to be writing a review of the book, and uh, the society will be publishing that soon. And um, anything else you want them to know?
0: Well, I talked a little bit about ideas of enlightenment, and that's one area where I'm not sure that I um, sort of buy the the Buddhist messages uh, in terms of what's referred to as not. Self, I do think that that's actually a brain state that people can get to, but I am not sure that it, that brain state is necessarily all it's cracked up to be. Uh, and so that's something that I, I, I on the other hand, I, I not having achieved that state, I can't say that you know I can't be too critical of it. But I, I kind of sometimes think that that, that is a goal of enlightenment uh, is is perhaps too ambitious uh, for most people to achieve, you know, I've I've been meditating for a number of years and I'm nowhere near that. So I kind of think mm-hmm. I'm trying to write things that are sort of practical for people that they can achieve within, uh, get some benefits within, you know, a few weeks or so. And you're not going to get that far to that. But I do believe there's, um, something that Ajahn a a Buddhist monk wrote about more about if you can bring the sense of loving kindness to every moment, that that is a, a kind of enlightenment. So that's, um, what I'm working on. Although, I even qualify that, I do mention this. Uh, I use, uh, talk about the serenity prayer, or I call it the serenity statement because I, again, I reformulated the um, words. It can be easily reformulated as a statement because it actually originates in Stoic wisdom, which was not a prayer. And mm-hmm. so, that, yeah, you know, I think in general we can have a kind of a kind, loving attitude to what's going on, but there are certain times where we may need to. Take a stand against injustice and say, okay, this is one. This is not something that I'm going to. I'm not going to love everything. There's a, lots of things to love. It's just we're pretty lucky to be uh, Homo sapiens and to be alive. You know, that's it's a pretty terrific thing. So I think for the most part we should have a lot of gratitude. But there are certainly some times where we do actually have to uh, um, take a stand on some things and uh, say that, okay, this one I won't. I'm not going to love this. I will try to change this.
1: Well, um, in here I thought I was going to be the one bring up Stoicism first, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a huge fan of it. People probably hear me talk about it all the time. And uh, a lot of overlap there, but I think one of the pitfalls that new students to both of these traditions have is that they, they hear things like acceptance and uh, non-attachment, and they think that that refers to outward action. And in reality, it refers to an inner equanimity. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's no reason we can't do everything that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But we we don't need to be in emotional turmoil as we do it. Okay, that's a good way you know, to express it. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much. I mean, I really appreciate this, and I'd love to have more conversations with you more often about especially the thing about the no-self and all that. Oh, that's... Juicy stuff. I'd love to talk about that some more. And we need to – I hope there's some opportunity in the future where we can get together again because obviously it's been too long. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Okay, so uh, that's about all the time we have for today's episode. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, please let us know in the comments of this episode's webpage what you thought of it and if you have any other additional input or questions for Rick. Again, his book is Secular Meditation, 32 Practices for Cultivating Inner Peace, Compassion, and Joy. You can get it through major booksellers or through the society on our website. Until next time, we wish you all well. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and join our
0: community at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrude jn forrest is our technical director and daniel strain is program director our hosts are daniel j and bt newberg please share our program with others and join us next time on spiritual naturalism today